So if you would turn in your Bibles um, to Luke 10. Actually, if you want to go, John, go to John 11 first, hold your finger there, then flip over to Luke 10. That would be good. Now, I know that we are all familiar with, uh, you know, making promises and resolutions and things that, 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 you know, I am going to start dieting. I am going to. And we do that even about spiritual things where we think, I, you know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do better. My, I'm, I'm going to get my prayer time going again. I'm going to get my devotions going, my Bible study, whatever it is. We, we often make those kinds of promises to ourselves and uh, resolutions, if you will. And then life just interferes. It gets hectic, crowded, draining, and things just fall by the wayside that shouldn't. And, you know, while other resolutions like dieting and exercise don't necessarily spark uh, a great level of guilt and condemnation, you make promises about what you're going to do with your spiritual life, and it, is, it can be challenging to deal with the failure year after year of not keeping up with the things that you want to do spiritually. And, you know, at times it's very difficult to, to know where to gain insight and inspiration. But in this particular area, to understand some of the biblical help that we get, and I don't mean help that just says it's a good idea for you to practice studying the Scripture, and you need to do it regularly, and don't forget to do it, and keep your eyes on the Lord, and all of the commands that start coming in. I mean stories that help us in our humanity, help us in our struggle for these things. title of my message this morning is Rethinking Martha, because I think the story of Martha of Bethany is very, very instructive. I've heard over the years, Christians ask themselves the question, am I a Martha? Not, am I like Martha, but am I a Martha? Because you see, for the most part, she has ceased to become a real Jewish woman living in Bethany a few thousand years ago. I read an article by Ed Welch not long ago, and, and he beautifully describes this, this, this notion or this idea of the kind of the spirit of, of Martha and, and how people use that as a means of self-identification. Martha, over the years, has been someone that you would definitely not be happy to find your name attached to. As in, you're being such a Martha. And it got me to thinking, did, did Luke and John put the stories of that family from Bethany in the Scripture so that we could have someone to kind of denigrate and think, oh, I don't want to be Martha. Well, now, I mean, the Bible does do that. You don't want to be a Saul. You know, you don't want to, you know, end up disobeying God at the end of your life and get yourself in trouble. So, I mean, it's not like that doesn't happen in Scripture, but it just got me to thinking. So, I went online and I drew up some sermons 
from these passages. And so one message I found, in a quote in one message I found was, Martha chose hospitality, Mary chose worship. Now, is that really what happened? Here's one of the more extreme titles I came across. Martha, tragedy of a misspent life. I'm thinking, somebody really preached that. Well, I got on a mission to rethink Martha and to try to recapture her testimony for others, her reputation. Now, I don't know that Martha cares about me trying to restore her reputation or not, but it was something that I got fixated on, and that's what I do. I get fixated on things, and I wanted to, to understand what was happening. You know, and, 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 and why? Why did I feel this need? Because I was reading John 7. I mean, excuse me, uh, John 11. We're going to go there in a minute. And I read her response to one of Jesus' questions in that dialogue, and she uttered these words, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And I thought to myself, I only know of one other place prior to the resurrection of Jesus Christ where anybody uttered those words, and it was the Apostle Peter when he was staring at a miraculous vision of Jesus being with, you know, Elijah. And see, I should have read this passage before because now I can't think of who was on the mountain. And yet I realized, whoa, that is some of what God was wanting us to see in that passage. And so what I want us to do this morning because really, that, that statement is the most profound of all of the declarations in Scripture. I want us to take a real quick look about Martha, who Martha was, and what that whole story is about. So, Father, I pray that you would help me this morning. Help me, Lord, to communicate your heart, your desire, God, what you want us to gather from this particular passage. Help me, Lord, I ask in Jesus' name. Amen. So the first place we have to begin is where we first meet Martha, where she gets a mild correction from Jesus. And this is in Luke chapter 10 and in verse, starting in verse 38. Now, as they went on their way, Jesus entered a village and a woman named Martha welcomed him into her house. And she had a sister called Mary who sat at the Lord's feet and listened to his teaching. But Martha was distracted with much serving. And she went up to him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Tell her then to help me. But the Lord answered her, Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many things. But one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion which will not be taken from her. And from that passage, somebody preached a message, Martha, the tragedy of a life, whatever, I, whatever that said, misspent life, tragedy of misspent life. 
So I don't know how they got there. But there is, Jesus does correct her. Before deciding if you're a Martha or not, we, we need to look at what actually transpired in this passage. So Jesus comes to town, begins to teaching the house of Martha. Martha surely wanted to hear what was going on, but she couldn't get past the to-do list. She, had many, she was serving. She was trying to make uh, <clears throat> plans and, and make everybody feel comfortable. She was doing what she, she was trained to do in that society is be hospitable, to take care of the people who were coming into her house to hear Jesus teach. And she becomes upset at having to serve alone. And you can see where the sibling thing comes in here. It's like, this, this, Mary, this is just typical. You leave me to do all the work. And so you can see the, the challenge there when your sister is doing that to you. Well, Jesus does not take Martha's side. And he does commend Mary because her perspective was right. She did not want to miss the one thing that was the most important. And that one thing, of course, was prioritizing the message of Jesus, the preaching of the gospel, and not elevating tasks in such a way that you miss the significance of the event. So it was good what Mary actually did. Now, the actual point of the story in Luke 10 is that the long-awaited Messiah, the Son of God, the fulfillment of every Jewish hope and longing had come. And Mary's actions proclaim that reality, which is why the story is there. Mary's not doing something heroic, by the way. She just has the better perspective. Jesus does does affirm that fact. It's what we do to Martha in that situation that misses the point. Because what happens is we don't understand fully the purpose of why the Martha part is here. And the word, key word in in that perspective is the word distracted. She was distracted. She's guilty of being distracted. Listen, when the fulfillment of all things, the expressed image of the invisible God made flesh walks into the living room, you may want to drop everything you're doing and hear what he has to say. But understanding the degree to which Martha was distracted puts our own distractions in perspective. Listen, Martha didn't fully understand, didn't have a full revelation of who Jesus was. There there was a lot of talk about him being the Messiah. There was faith that he probably was. There was a friendship that was uh, beginning to happen here. But there was no full revelation at that point of who he was. And why we have to understand that we know that sitting in our living rooms is the very words of the Son of God that bring life to us, and yet a day of too many diapers, too much exhaustion, too much demand, God incarnate could bring a Bible study into our living room, and it would be hard for us to not be distracted. And distraction is so rampant in our society. I have a better appreciation 
for Mary, I mean, Martha's struggle. I feel that at times. My phone's been sitting there for about however long I've been preaching, seven, eight, ten minutes. And I'm wondering, am I missing anything? Has a text come in that I need to know about? There's some things happening back home. What, what, what's happening? Did she end up going to the hospital? Is she not going to the hospital? I mean, there, there's stuff that I'm concerned with and worried about. And it's like it calls me. You know? And, 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 and I, I understand that... It's easy for me to be distracted. Now that's, I'm making that sound noble. A Marvel movie can do that to me. I have Disney Plus on my television. I've seen every Marvel movie. At least twice. Some of them three times. I can't wait for the next stream to come in from the Winter Soldier. I missed it Friday. I need to get done so I can get home and watch it. I understand the distraction aspect of things. And what this passage is calling us to do is to make sure our to-do list is topped by a commitment to make sure What we don't get distracted from is our time with God. That we make a serious effort to cultivate our relationship with the Lord. To sit at His feet in the Word. To sit at His feet in our times of worship and ministry together. That's what that passage is there for. And Martha reminds us of how easy it is to get distracted with the things of life... And they become more important than they should. But here's also, I think, what is there. Is there is true grace for those of us who are anxious, worried, and get distracted. I doubt that you are as worried or troubled as Martha. In fact, the, 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 the pain that people have felt by being, oh, I, I don't want to be a Martha, is actually evidence that you're not. Because you have a heart that wants to dig into the, to the right things, to the good things of God. And you feel that draw and you're frustrated that you can't get there. Well, if you know how that feels, certainly Martha is a good example of how that feels. And our desire to, to we can learn from her that Jesus is not looking at us and saying, wait a minute, you didn't get the to-do list done. He's calling us into fellowship with himself. And because we're longing to press past that to-do list and sit at his feet, we are learning the very things that we're supposed to learn as we look at that first picture of Martha. And we have the help and the grace of God to get us through that. The rest and the peace that can come to us in the midst of the busyness and the demands of life, both at work and at home, the rest and the peace that comes in the joy of knowing that with all of our responsibilities, we 
have someone we can turn to for strength and grace and help in our time of need. And we need to take even those little moments during the day to connect with God. I have Sirius XM in my, my, both of my cars, and, um, and you, you, you've got six presets, and I've got 60s on 6, 70s on 7, the Beatles channel, classic, um, what's it called, uh, classic vinyl, the bridge, and the message. And there are times when I think, uh, I don't need to be listening to the 125th version of A Hard Day's Night. I need to connect with the Lord. And taking those moments to make those kinds of decisions and make those connections and worship or pray or what, those things, even in the midst of the busyness and the demands of our lives, that's what the Scripture is calling us to do. But now I want to go to Martha's finest moment. Go to John chapter 11. Now again, I recognize that this story is here to communicate primarily the power of the gospel through the resurrection. I understand that. But understand also that John's whole gospel is built around the revelations of the glory of God in Christ Jesus. One commentator made it, put it this way. We don't measure his love by how much he gives us, but by how much he shows us. And that a part of John's uh, desire is to show even the unbelievers, to show them the glory of God, not just tell them about the glory of God. And because Jesus loved Lazarus, Mary, and Martha, because he loved them, he stayed two days longer. Let's read this. Now, when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off, and many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went out to meet him, but Mary remained seated in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now I know that whatever you ask from me, God will give you. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, Yes, Lord, I believe you. I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. Martha, who gets a bad rap for serving while others are sitting, gets to shine. Here in her grief, she gets up, goes out to meet Jesus, after the death of her brother Lazarus, and has this encounter. Before I 
get back into this. Let's, I want to take a look quickly at Mary's response. What is Mary's response to knowing that Jesus is coming? She stays seated. There was no main thing, good part to get from staying seated this time. The action was happening outside, not inside. I'm not mad at Mary. I'm not going to say she was lazy. I'm not going to say that she had turned into an unbeliever all of a sudden. That would be to take it the wrong direction. But here's the point. This isn't about Mary's response. This is about Martha's response. This is a different story. And, And her statement that says when going on in the passage when she had said this she went and called her sister Mary saying in private the teacher is here and is calling for you and when she heard it she rose quickly and went to him and now now Jesus had not yet come into the village but was still in the place where Martha had met him when the Jews who were with her in the house consoling her saw what was going on they quickly uh, they rose quickly and went out they followed her supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there Now, when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet saying, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Same thing that her sister said. When Jesus saw her weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, where have you laid him? He said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. So the Jews said, see how he loved him. But some of them said, could not he have opened the eyes of the blind man also? If he can open the eyes of the blind man, could he not have kept this man from dying? Many have assumed that it was Mary's weeping that touched Jesus and caused him to weep. I think it was his love for Lazarus. Partly it was the right thing to do. There there is grief, even though Jesus knew he was going to he was only asleep. He was going to raise again. It's, the, it's the, that he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled that, that we have to pull out and say, okay, what, what, what is that all about? What does that mean? Because that's what he says right before he weeps. One thing, Jesus knows that what the mourners are really thinking. He knows what their heart is. I mean, they're there, they're weeping, they're crying, but he knows it's not real grief. They're just trying to, it was one of the things that as a, uh, society they did, they wept with one another and they mourned together even though they might not necessarily feel the depth of what the friend was feeling. Deeply moved in this case is not a Greek word associated with compassion. It's a word that's associated with rebuke and warning. Greatly troubled signifies being shaken or agitated. It's the same word that John uses in chapter 5 to describe the water at the pool of Bethesda being stirred up before the sick were being placed into it. And it's also used in John 14 where he says, let not your hearts be troubled. Jesus was shaken up. He was disturbed. John Piper, John Stott both believe that Jesus is disturbed because his motives are being questioned. Stott says that the idiomatic phrase, Jesus wept, is literally our burst into tears. His emotions were complex. Our emotions are always complex. Carson, D.A. Carson translates this, he was outraged in spirit and troubled. Here's the point. When we use the sovereignty of God 
as a reason to be resigned, willing to complain about our circumstances, not willing to press through and trust God in our relationship. That is an important issue. He's deeply moved and troubled by a lack of faith that's going on there. Now, not in a critical, don't grieve kind of way. He weeps with them. And that's the point that that I think John's making is, no, he's entering into the grief of it, but he's also greatly disturbed by the influence going on around of these people who he knows their thoughts of, well, he should have been here and he could have done this and if he didn't, and that that is affecting Mary and to a certain extent had affected Martha. He's not mad at death here, as some propose. He planned this death, so to speak. He's not weeping for Lazarus. He knew he was raising him from the dead. His strong emotion that the unbelief and the passivity of their faith was was affecting them. That the, the Mary didn't see her, her weeping, her, it, it was the right emotion. And Jesus understood her grief, but he's troubled in spirit because he wants Mary to, in this situation, trust. And what he had experienced from Martha was that very thing. Martha was suffering. Her faith was struggling. But her suffering mixed with her faith evoked the most profound revelation of all the Gospels from Jesus' mouth. Martha starts with the same words that Mary did. So grief... The, the, the grief and the, the questions are the same. But Mary leaves it there, whereas Martha wants to both understand and trust. And so she says, when Jesus says, you know, I am the resurrection and life, or your brother will rise again, rather. Okay, yes, Lord, doctrinally, I get that he will rise on that day, but that doesn't answer the delay. Why you delayed? No, Martha, Jesus is saying, that day, he will rise on that day is here. I am the resurrection and the life. It's today. That resurrection is secured because I am here. But so that you will know, boom, Lazarus come forth. Listen, verse 25, Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. That's good news for Lazarus at this point. But the rest, everyone, whoever believes in me, though he die, he shall live. And Everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. That's for us. 
That's for Martha. That's the point. That is the reality of the situation. This isn't keep the law and you'll get the gift of resurrection. It's trust in me and you will never, ever lack for fellowship and relationship with your God. So he asked her, do you believe this? And she said, yes, Lord. You are the Christ. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Peter and Martha are the only two to utter those words prior to the death of Jesus. Of all of the I am disclosures in the Gospel of John, I am the resurrection and the life is the one that all others are dependent upon. If death is not defeated, Jesus as the good shepherd is a nice thought and helpful for right now, but it doesn't accomplish what Jesus desires for us. And it's only as good. It only lasts until we die. If death is not defeated, Satan is not defeated. So Jesus' revelation, showing of himself to her, Martha gets this picture of this intimate glorious Savior and a view of what's really going on and what is going to take place. And she now sees and believes He is the Messiah. He is the Christ. He is the Son of the living God. And it's all right now. And I want to say that as a woman who represents all those who would ever follow Jesus... She makes a confident, clear assertion about him and who he was that resonates and resounds across time. He raised Lazarus. He's going to raise us. So what would it be like to be a Martha? What does it mean to be a Martha? Well, to be a Martha means that you're to learn the lesson that when Jesus is in the room, he's the priority. Don't get distracted. We can take every opportunity that we can, small or large, to increase our fellowship with him. But what Mary and we and the, all generations get from Martha's finest moment is that genuine faith moves from receiving the good portion to demonstrating and declaring our faith in the one who brings the good portion. It has to move from just knowing we're going to get the good portion to declaring that we're going to get the good portion. Simply knowing the right things is not enough. Yes, Lord, I know that he will rise on that last day. But it's not enough. We must live what we believe and confess. Not that he can take care of what's going on in our circumstances, including somebody dying. He does take care of those situations. Maybe not all the way, all of the ways that we want him to, but he does come in and take care of those situations. 
He loves and He cares for us. And, and He knows what I'm going through. And he, he knows where my heart is at. And even if He chooses not to show me His power, He will show me His glory. And here Martha got both. There is hope in the face of death. Listen, book of Ecclesiastes teaches us that death is a universal fact. It's a final horizon that, that frames all of our dreams and purposes. And if it frames it in a way that it, it kills them, we don't understand death. But if we understand Christ won victory over death, and it doesn't have the final say, we've learned the lesson of Ecclesiastes and Martha's experience. We have been raised, not going to be raised, we have been raised to newness of life. There is a resurrection that we experience now, and we're going to celebrate it next week. A life that fights to overcome remaining sin because our to-do list has been given to the Savior is a life that is characterized by living that in a, way, in a way that we actually really believe the truth, the profound truth spoken to Martha. She is our heritage, heroine. She is, she's our hero. That's what I was trying to say. She is our hero. She's not an anxious woman driven by her OCD. Like her. We need to be deeply moved and troubled along with Jesus by the unbelief and passivity and resignation that we, we see around us and in our own hearts. We can have joy trusting in the sovereign power of our Savior even when in the valleys and darkness it is not yet our experience. Let's pray. Father, we, we are familiar with trouble and challenges and, and unbelief and fear and anxiety. Lord, we are familiar with suffering and pain and disappointment. Lord, help us to become familiar, more familiar, with the fact that you, because you are the resurrection and the life, we will overcome death. We will overcome sin. We will have eternal life and we will experience that eternal life even now because of what you accomplished on the cross and what God confirmed by raising you from the dead. Oh God, help us. Help us, Lord, to not get so wrapped up in our to-do list, so wrapped up in the fear of catching whatever's out there, Lord, that we miss the good part. Lord, don't let us get so overtaken by our grief that we forget that you are the resurrection and the life. Help us to honor you with our lives, Lord. And thank you for Martha. In Jesus' name, amen.